Brothers and sisters, welcome. It is good to be back. Thank you for welcoming me in, and <clears throat> thank you for the, the work and the ministry that you do. It is, it is not a pastor that makes the church, but the body. You are the, the very ministers to this community. And I am, I am continually thankful to know that you are here in Culpeper doing that work. So this morning, um, I'll be focusing on Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, in this particular chapter, um, we'll observe that Paul is going to pray, thanking God for his sovereignty. And although you won't find the word sovereignty in the text today, Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 are some of the key texts that teach us what it means for God to save us through his own choice and election, not by any works or choice of our own. So when we use the word sovereignty, um, or perhaps providence, you may have also heard, we mean that God, who is all-powerful and above all other things, he has both the power and the will to do whatever he pleases. He is unconstrained by any outside force or higher power. He can create and destroy and judge and forgive as he sees fit. He is not hindered by time, nor natural law, nor by philosophical quandaries or any other moral standard. And so then that definition may naturally raise certain intellectual questions, such as if God controls everything, do we have free will? Or how are we responsible for our actions if God chooses to make us righteous or not? Or does God literally cause everything to happen, even the bad things? But then germane to this particular message today, you might ask, what does it mean to pray if God is going to do whatever he wants anyway? And I won't even attempt to answer any of those questions, actually, <laughs> although they are interesting. <laughs> there are numerous different ways that philosophers and theologians have wrestled with these issues, but I find it interesting that the Bible doesn't actually answer those questions either. The way that the Bible deals with what seems like a logical conundrum to us is by making it very clear that, one, God is sovereign and all-powerful, and two, we are responsible for ourselves, and prayer matters. So the best we can do is hold both of those things to be true and develop an understanding that flows from those two truths and be as faithful and honest as possible, knowing that we will not satisfactorily answer these philosophical challenges this side of eternity. One day, in glorified body and mind, perhaps we will understand, but perhaps we won't, and that will be fine. So if we're not going to evaluate these logical questions, what have we to learn from a passage about prayer and sovereignty? Let's go on ahead and go to the text. I'm going to read the entirety of the first chapter. The focus on prayer is found in verses 15 through 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, 
which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so recalling that we are searching this chapter for insights regarding prayer, verse 15 then is significant. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul is thanking God. This is a prayer of praise and adoration and thanksgiving. And for what reason? The surrounding verses indicate the answer. He is thanking God, first for God's work in saving the saints in Ephesus. He then goes on to thank God for more of his work, his gifts to us specifically his granting of wisdom to us, his enlightening of our hearts to hope, his inheritance that he has given to us, and his incredible display of power. So we are going to thank God today for his sovereignty in salvation, the granting of wisdom, the enlightening of our hearts to hope in our inheritance, and the demonstration of his power. First, let's return to the first half of Ephesians 1, in particular verses 3 through 10. And this passage, although not dense, contains every element of the gospel, and each element is shown to be a work of God's sovereignty. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We see that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before creation which reveals that the God's redemptive plan, the plan to send Jesus Christ to atone for our sins, was never plan B. God was not caught off guard by the failure of creation to properly worship him. But rather, before the foundation of the world, he had in mind both your sin and your salvation. When Adam and Eve first sinned, God was not scrambling to come up with a solution. And therefore, even today, his sovereignty is not threatened by you going off plan. Next, continuing in verse 4, God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. This is the crux of the necessity of the gospel. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. 
He does whatever he wants, and he is holy. Holy means God is perfect, righteous, absolutely moral. And because he is sovereign and can do anything, he in fact defines what good means. He is not beholden to a standard of good that exists outside of himself, but because of his power and his sovereignty, his actions and his word defines righteousness. But we, of course, are not holy by nature. We are, by nature, unholy. And herein lies the fundamental problem of our existence. God is holy. We are not. And because God is holy, we cannot be with him. We cannot stand before his judgment. And yet, God makes us holy and blameless before him. He goes on to explain how, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Just as God had a plan for salvation of the world, he had a plan for the salvation and adoption of you. He has always had a plan for your salvation if you are, in fact, chosen by him. And as much as we can imagine how precious it would be to say to an adopted child, I've chosen you. I've chosen you to be my child. How much more precious is it then that God says to us, I have always chosen you. Before you had the chance to earn my favor, I have chosen you to be my child. And all this then continuing, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So all this according to his purpose, according to his will, for his glorious grace. God saves us, having chosen us from before time, for his own glory. And this is, in fact, a source of great comfort to us because God's glory, like his holiness and his sovereignty, is unassailable. There is no fragility in his glory. And therefore, our salvation is secure. Our salvation, tied to God's glory, which can never be changed or diminished. Our salvation, for his glory, can never be changed or diminished. Our salvation is not for our sake, but for God's sake. And so then cannot be threatened by any outside or inside force. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption being significant here, it's, a, it's somewhat of a technical term when used in scripture, meaning something along the lines of bought and paid for. I have the receipts. Jesus has secured our salvation by paying for it with his blood. And so we then are redeemed by that payment. We can show the evidence, the paper trail of our salvation. Not to prove it to others, but to prove to ourselves. God has paid for our salvation, for his glory, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And finishing with verses 8 through 10, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so finally, not only has God done all this for us, but he has made it known to us. He has given us word and witness to reveal his plan, both in the history, in the present, and in the future. (coughs) 
I'll read verses 11 through 14 to complete Paul's thought, um, but without comment as we're trying to get through the whole thing. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And as this sermon is about prayer, we're now going to pause for a moment to pray, a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his sovereignty in saving us. And as the word of God is our source of truth and revelation, we will be taking an example from scripture itself. I'll be praying a prayer of thanksgiving from Jonah chapter two. Please pray with me. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. And now that we have established a firm foundation upon the gospel, let us see for what reason Paul prays. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now we see that we're given wisdom and revelation and knowledge, but, but not merely these things. In fact, we are given here the spirit of wisdom. Now this is a much more sure and precious thing than the wisdom of our earthly fathers. With all due respect to my father and yours, they do occasionally teach us wrong. But this gift from God is not an ephemeral teaching moment that we might misunderstand or later forget or find to be less than reliable. Rather, this gift of wisdom and revelation and knowledge from God is a person. In fact, God himself, the very spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, dwells within Christians, giving you wisdom over and over again, and in fact, over time, changing you into a different, more wise type of person. And we, of course, know from the previous passage that without this indwelling spirit of wisdom, we could never have even understood God's revelation from the gospel. The gospel is folly to those who do not have the spirit of wisdom, let alone any of the other marvelous truths that God has for us to know about him and about ourselves and our world. And so then this spirit of wisdom becomes a valuable guardrail or perhaps even corrective when praying for wisdom. I think in, in two ways this is true. First, it is useful to remember when you are doubting 
or when you are dealing with those who are doubting or skeptical or even hostile to the gospel. See, right now, I feel like Christianity makes a lot of sense. You know, as I'm up here teaching from the Bible, it seems consistent. Everything adds up in my mind. It explains human experience so well. You know, it answers these deep, innate questions that mankind has. And so it's tempting for me right now to think that I, having rationally evaluated the evidence available to me, have chosen to believe Christianity. And yet that would be both arrogant and incorrect. Because you see, God, having chosen me, in fact, has given me the spirit of wisdom, which is necessary to understand and believe any of these things, be they revelation from scripture or from nature. See, God is the main character of every step of the way in salvation, including even the very first step before you can even comprehend the words of the gospel. And what this means for us then is that when praying for wisdom, doubts need not pressure us to perform. God being the source of all wisdom that leads to all good things and not you, secures you in the knowledge that it is not you who must overcome your doubt, but rather the spirit of wisdom within you that allows you to. And likewise, when frustrated by the intransigent skeptic, recognize that you will never convince someone of the gospel. It is not up to you to provide the necessary arguments to convince or persuade anyone of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather the Lord gives the spirit of wisdom in his own time. So be free from that. And the second guardrail that is valuable when praying for wisdom, especially prayers of the variety of, God, help me to make this decision, or what do I do here? Let us remember that we are already indwelt with the spirit of wisdom. We're not awaiting a lightning bolt or a messenger from God, but we in fact have God himself within us. And beyond that, we have revelation that we call the Bible, from which we can inquire on any number of topics or questions. So let us not wait out God for his answer to our prayers for wisdom, but rather let us recognize that we have been given what God deems to be sufficient, both a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So let's now take a moment and pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his sovereignty in giving us his wisdom and his revelation from Daniel chapter two. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what I ask of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. Amen. So let's then continue in our passage in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Consider how we use the word hope in everyday language. I hope I pass this test. I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. But that's clearly not how this text or, or really any part of the Bible uses the word hope 
Rather, hope, as it is presented in Scripture, is something that is, one, known, and two, anchored in a future certain reality. Hope is not a word of probability or gambling, I hope I win, but rather of assurance, I have hope. We have been called to a hope that is not likely to come true, but preordained, known to God. And because of God's sovereignty, therefore known to us, because he has opened the eyes of our heart to his wisdom. And what exactly is this hope that we have, this hope for the future? It is the riches of his glorious inheritance. Inheritance is such an important word in scripture, especially to the Israelites. Throughout God's covenantal history, he has promised many inheritances to his people. He promises offspring. He promises a people. He promises a land. He promises a Messiah. And he always comes through. And now he promises even so much more. Looking back up in verses 5 and 11, we've obtained an inheritance of salvation and of adoption as sons. How much greater an inheritance is this than land? Most of us, if we have living parents, are probably under the assumption that we will receive an inheritance of some sort. And whether or not you've thought that much about it, I'm sure that in the back of your mind, the idea is at least there somewhere. How much will it be? How will it be split up? Will the black sheep of the family get a share? Maybe these are all questions that we have. And maybe you know what your inheritance is, but it's more likely that you're making your best guess maybe based on your parents' lifestyle or their habits of generosity. And these questions, they concern us, one, because we're often petty and selfish, but, but these questions concern us because our parents' inheritance to us is finite. How it is divided matters. It has limits. But God's inheritance is so much greater. Like our parents, we can only guess how great the riches are to be granted to us. But unlike our parents, we know that his riches are so innumerable that even split a trillion ways, we would never come close to the end of it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His city in heaven will be built of gold with walls of gems and gates of pearl. God is rich beyond the wildest fathoming of the richest man on earth. And he has adopted you as an inheritor to his estate. And without putting too fine a point on God's net worth, let's also recognize that he is rich in much else, mercy and wisdom. He is rich in authority. He is the king of all kings. He is the creator of everything. And he has adopted you as a son into that you in heaven will receive inheritor's crowns and a seat at the king's table. And so it is in this inheritance that we have our hope. We don't hope for good things to happen, but rather we have hope. Because this good and great and marvelous inheritance is already bought and paid for and promised by a sovereign God. And so then when we pray, even when we pray in suffering and in doubt and in loss, when we pray for things that we desperately desire and do not receive, we know that God is sovereign over our lives and has given us a certain hope that no matter what comes to pass, 
we are guaranteed an inheritance greater than whatever we ask for here. And nothing could ever take that away. And so we pray in light of this inheritance, trusting that God is working us towards that gift that he has prepared for us. We pray with certain hope because God's inheritance is boundless and unshakable. Let's pray again to God, adoring him for his steadfastness, which gives us hope from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. And so we now arrive at the final verses in this passage, 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above any rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's difficult to convey the, the level of passion that Paul has here, each phrase more elevated than the last. The energy is tangible and rightly so. Uh, to even attempt to describe God's power necessarily flirts with heresy as our, our human language is just insufficient to comprehend, let alone describe, the power of God. And so Paul then wisely does not attempt to inventory God's power or to, to name which of his works is the most mighty of all. He merely starts a list of God's mighty deeds and a list that quickly overwhelms with emotion and glory. We first see God's great might that he worked when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. If there is one thing about this world that is certain, it is that no man lives forever. No matter your fitness or wealth or nationality or religion or what diet or doctor you have, nor sheer force of will, death will come for you one day. That is the great final certainty of this earth. And yet God, being all-powerful and sovereign, is unconstrained by this. He is not cowed by death, nor is he impressed by its power. He is so great that he can, in fact, reverse the irreversible, returning the dead to life. And he is not even for a moment insecure about this power. So sure is he that he can undo death that he sends his own son to die for the purpose of accomplishing his plans. At no point was there any risk involved. This is true power. And so then he not only raises Jesus and thereby us from the dead, he sits Christ at his own right hand, the place of highest honor and power at the table. So God not only has this immeasurable power, 
but he also has the power to grant power. His simple declaration of seating arrangements has conferred onto Jesus absolute rule, dominion, authority over all things. There is no man so great and mighty in the world that is not crushed under the weight of God's authority. And not only is his authority and power absolute, it is eternal. There's no expiration date. It does not pass away. There's no power vacuum. Those who buck against his yoke today, they can't wait him out. And those who embrace his rule will never have to reminisce about the good old days. They go on forever. And as sure as God has this absolute power, so is he generous with it. For after creating all things to his own glory, after giving up his son, but then raising him back from the dead, after seating Christ over all things forever and ever, God, who has everything, is so complete, so unthreatened, so unafraid of loss, that he freely and graciously gives Jesus to the church, to his children. Surely, like me, you have experienced the desire, the dream one day to just have such a large amount of money that you can just solve a problem, give it away, and not even have to think about it. Oh, you know, what's $10,000 here and there? How much money would that have to be? Likewise, how much power must you have? How great must you be to not only then grant that to your heir, but then to grant Jesus to the church as a bridegroom for her. How powerful must God be to so, so freely give it away? That is just the kind of God that he is. And so what then does this have to do with prayer? Because if God is so powerful, why do I need to pray at all? So this is a key inflection point in the message today. See, as always, our prayers, they are to God. And if we pray rightly, under the biblical example, our prayers are primarily about God. But in particular, in the context of sovereignty, prayers worshiping God, prayers thanking God for his sovereignty, are for us, for our good. Prayers of thanksgiving to God for his sovereignty serve to anchor us and in particular, as we consider his power. It's true, God does not need your prayers. They are certainly to him. We adore him, we thank him, we praise him, we confess to him, we ask of him. He does not need them, but we do. All these other promises that God has given us, salvation, wisdom, inheritance, they are all anchored by God's power. Indeed, I could, I could promise you anything. I could promise you all these things and more. I could promise you a million dollars. But that's not credible because I don't have the power to grant these things. I can make you the king of whatever country you want and it means nothing because I don't have the power to grant that authority. Other gods have promised throughout the course of history everything under the sun and still do to this day. Worship me and receive crops, children, happiness, victory, peace, status, money, whatever you want. 
There's God out there promising it to you. Satan himself promised to Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. But not a single one of those promises is credible because not a single one of those promisors is powerful like our God is. It makes me think of James who reminds us that that you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There is no power on heaven or on earth that can promise everything and mean it, except God. And we all make marriage vows, and I assume on our wedding day we all mean it, but we break them. Your insurance company contractually promises to make you whole when disaster strikes, and yet the day after your house burns down, they go out of business. The government promises to keep you safe, but the terrorists are in the skies. Satan promises that he will make you happy, maybe even make you like God. And he might even manage it for a little while, but the second you die and find yourself before the throne of God, he can't do a thing. But God, our God, promises salvation, resurrection, wisdom, and an inheritance in his household forever. And there is nothing he cannot do. So let us pray now a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his power from Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. He sent from on high, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. They were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Amen. So then when we pray, when we pray to a sovereign God, how should we pray? And ultimately, the answer is with thanksgiving. We worship him first for giving us wisdom 
and revelation to even see him at all. Every scrap of hope we have in him is because he sought us first. No amount of squinting can help a blind man see any better. And then this hope that has been revealed to us, it is a hope of certainty with not a hint of chance or a possibility of failure. And beyond that, we thank God for the hope of glory. We do not have a hope that we will barely make it, but rather we have a hope that we will receive an inheritance in the very house of God. There is no pain or fear or loss here on earth that can ever compare to that. And who can then ensure these promises, these seemingly unbelievable promises? Surely no one can be so great as to bring all this about. But God can. His power, which was demonstrated in creation, at the resurrection, and which is proven every day by Jesus sitting on the throne, will make good on every promise. And so praying in light of God's providence is about recognizing that God is the main character of our prayers. He is the one who saves. He is the one who gives revelation. He is the one who gives hope. He is the one who has the power. All of our prayers should be to and about God. When you pray to God for salvation, for healing, when you pray in times of joy and in times of grief, when you pray for miracles or small things, when you pray in confidence, when you pray in doubt, when you pray with a bad attitude, and when you pray for things that you do not receive, whenever you pray, remember that your prayers are not about you. They are about our sovereign God. Every tiny moment in his hands and in his absolute control. Whether you realize it or not, every prayer is about God. So as I prepare to pray and close us, I will then admit that this is a, a personal and, in fact, challenging subject for me. Um, as, I, as I was writing this sermon a few months ago for uh, my home church in Fredericksburg, I think many of you know that that was shortly after Amy and I had lost our unborn child. And, uh, in fact, on the Friday night before I first delivered this, uh, my grandma, after 15 years of dementia, uh, passed away, um, blessedly surrounded by many children and grandchildren into the arms of the Lord, but uh, painfully. And, and sadly, nonetheless. And so then to be frank, you know, I'm, I'm still not over those things, nor will I ever be, but, but they're still raw to me. My prayers are often tear-filled in these days. And it is in times like these when God's sovereignty is both most challenging, but also most needed. I preach this sermon and I pray these prayers for me, to and about God, but because I, I need the reminder of his sovereignty. I pray as a cry to my Father and as a sermon to myself of what I know to be true, that wisdom that God has granted me. Though I do not feel it every day, though I do not like it every day, I know that it is God's sovereignty, his providence, his power that has saved me and assures me of hope. And so to you, whether you are as solid as a rock or today you are set adrift by suffering or grief or strife 
or uncertainty or fear. Preach the sovereignty of God over your own fragile soul as a sure and steady anchor, knowing that it is God who makes all these promises possible. So please join me now in one final prayer of thanksgiving to him, about him, for his glory, and for our good. Father, before I even had my first thought, you had already chosen to save me. So thank you. Thank you for your sovereignty. My blind and wicked heart would never have chosen you. All of us here in this body owe everything to you. Bless you and praise you for your generous gifts to us. And God, you have given us not just the wisdom to see, but your spirit, full of wisdom, to change our hearts and our minds forever. You have given us your word, which I pray by your power we have just heard preached. You have revealed yourself to us. You, God, over all things, beyond the comprehension of insignificant man, so holy that we could not even look at you, let alone be with you, have come down to make yourself known. And for that we thank you. Thank you for saving us, we who deserve nothing. And God, we praise you, we adore you for the hope to which you have called us. We thank you for assuring us of such glories and riches and joy that we cannot fathom. We thank you for adopting us as sons, for choosing us to be your people, your possession, your children, your inheritors. And like the ultimate father you are, give us the comfort and security that only the arms of a father can give. We take hope in our inheritance in your household that we will certainly one day enjoy. And Father, we especially thank you for those whom we have lost that are also your children. We thank you that they are enjoying their inheritance this very day. And we pray that we meet them soon. Lastly, God, we thank you for your power, your greatness, your sovereignty. For it is only because we serve an all-powerful God that we can have any surety at all. Our own power and our idols and the powers of this world are useless in the most difficult days of life. But you, you are the creator, the covenanter, you are our redeemer, the conqueror and the king. And you are all we need. You are all we need. For by your power, we are given all things. So Lord, into your sovereign hands, we commit our lives. Your will be done for your purposes, to your glory, and for our good. And should you will it, may we see but a glimpse of it on this side of eternity. And Lord, we always eagerly await that day when all of your promises come due. Bless your name. Praise and honor forever are only yours. Amen.